0: This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to a festive holiday edition of Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the Internet this week as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant, joining me today for this festive holiday special in the co-host chair. The co-host and co-creator of the Villains on Vacation podcast. Joining me all the way from Philly, Mr. Eric Skinkle. How are you doing, Eric? I'm
1: doing great, Don. Thanks for having me.
0: Boy, Philadelphia and and Pennsylvania, you haven't been in the news at all lately. (laughs) (laughs) It
1: has been uh, a bit of a crazy uh, couple I would say weeks or months for us, yeah. yeah.
0: Spe- <laughs> speaking of villains on vacation. Uh, <laughs> so tell tell us about the podcast. What exactly is the Villains on Vacation podcast? Because it's a lot of fun.
1: Yes. Um, it's uh, a co- My co-host and I, um, we are big nerds. So we, every episode, pick one villain. We go through villain characteristics, but then we dive into what a date with them would be like, <laughs> where vacation we would be like with them, um, who they would bring on vacation, who would they hate to see on vacation, all while we're drinking a villain-themed drink throughout
0: the episode. So now why did you decide to go with villains as opposed to heroes, superheroes? Uh
1: both me and my co-host, we uh really like the villains. Uh, a little bit more than the heroes. Um, they're a little bit more complex and interesting to talk about. Right. Growing up, I was a big Star Wars fan, and one of those, uh, one of my favorite characters in the Star Wars universe was Emperor Palpatine. So mm-hmm. I'm always. More on the villain side. Sure,
0: sure. And villains are way more fun, right?
1: And there's so many more of them compared to, you know, heroes have, uh, you know, rogues galleries within them.
0: That's true. That's very, very true. There's – I can't remember who the comedian is. I don't know if you've talked about this in the show because I haven't listened to all the episodes yet. But there's a comedian who talks about the fact that most villains in – especially a lot of the Disney films are actually coded to be gay and that there's a, there's a huge problem with the fact that their voices and their uh, their general affect is coded. It's a great bit I'm gonna have to look it up and I'll I'll post it on the on the Twitter feed for those of you who want it It's actually a very very funny bit You should look into it and maybe talk about it on one of the episodes. it's great
1: yeah, I've never heard that one, so yeah, definitely look into that.
0: Okay, so, today is kind of a weird episode of Three Interesting Things. Normally, we talk about three very disparate things, three things that are completely separate from each other. However, because of the fact that it's going to be Christmas this week, we decided to do a festive Christmas episode. And what better to focus on than the most Christmassy of all films? Within this skyscraper high above the city, twelve terrorists have declared war. They're about to be told a lesson and the real die hard which now i I was thinking about this this morning as i was getting ready for the show today Uh, if you had to actually guess eric within like two or three how many times would you say you have watched die hard
1: um it's gotta be up there in the the 50s Uh,
0: wow i was i think i'm probably at around 20 but if you're in the 50s wow that's that's up there man
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those where around Christmas time, I usually watch it. And if it's on TV, I'll stop and I'll watch it. Um, It's one of those where I don't have to really pay attention anymore. I can just do something in the background (laughs) and pop in and out.
0: Well, one of the nice things is uh, when you do you have kids or no? Uh, no, I do not. I have I have two kids, and my eldest uh, just turned twenty. Uh, and about five or six years ago, we got her into the tradition of wanting to watch Die Hard around this time of year. So, in fact, I think now we are at three Christmases in a row where we have actually watched Die Hard on Christmas Day, quite literally on Christmas Day. And just the other day, she said, "Hey, when are we watching Die Hard this year?" And I thought, you know what? I win parenting. That's mm-hmm. what that means. Uh, so, what <laughs> we're gonna do, what we're gonna do today in today's show is that the three interesting things are going to be let's be honest more like 87 mildly fascinating things if you're someone who enjoys the film I have a whole bunch of stuff you have a whole bunch of stuff now for the listener Eric and I have not checked in with each other on our stuff I know what Eric's interesting thing is going to be because it's something that I had never heard before which is going to be thing number two coming at you in about 10 minutes I'm going to start with my interesting thing Thing one. Now my interesting thing for you, Eric, is going to be phrased as a question, which I am almost guaranteed that you are going to answer correctly. Okay. okay. All right. I'm ready. And and I feel almost embarrassed saying this is an interesting game because any diehard head, there's got to be a name for people who are diehard heads. Die diehard, die dieharders? Diehead head hard hard heads? That's I, I, uh,
1: I would say dieharders would make more sense. Diehard I think. yeah, that's
0: better than hard headers. That's <laughs> to type that into Urban Dictionary and you'll have a good time. Okay, so here we go. My interesting thing is that the role of John McClane, which we know was offered to a number of people, we'll get into that in a second, but contractually had to be offered to one particular man who had to turn it down before it could go into anybody else. And that man was who, Eric? Uh, would that be Frank Sinatra? That would be the beloved Mr. Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes himself. Now, of course, this is because, and some people don't know this, Die Hard was based on a book. It was mm-hmm. based on a book by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. But that book was kind of sort of a sequel to another book he had written called The Detective, which was made into a movie in 1966. But because that character was generally the same character... In this second film, it had to be offered to the person who played the character in the first one, which was Frank Sinatra.
1: Frank Sinatra wanted to do a sequel earlier, um, but by the time they were getting ready to do an actual movie, he he even said himself when he turned it down that, uh, you don't want a middle-aged guy running around in a skyscraper fighting terrorists at this point. Yeah.
0: Well, not only middle-aged. By the time they offered it to him, he was seventy-two years old, which <laughs> right. would have made. I mean, it's a different film. It's you know what? I would watch that film. I'm not going to lie. That's a film right. that I might have particular <laughs> interest in. Is a seventy-two-year-old blue eyes running around facing off with Alan Rickman. The the character in the first film and the detective and in the first book. He was named Joe Leland. That was the the hero of the first book, the detective. And then when they when they changed it into the second one, he became John McClane. But they had to contractually offer it to him, which he quite wisely refused. And then after that, they said, you know what? Since he can't do it, let's go to Bruce Willis. Oh no! Wait a minute. They did not do that at all. Mm-mm.
1: No, no. They uh, they went to all the main action stars at that point in time, and they turned it down because they thought that McLean was a wuss because he ran around and uh, uh, hid and tried to get help instead of fighting them directly
0: well this was one of the things that i remember uh, now i am old enough i i don't uh, you you are probably not i'm old enough to have seen this film in the theater did you see it in the theater or no i did not it was before yeah. my time <laughs> i know yeah i'm i am of a, a bit of a different vintage i saw this in the theater and i remember uh, and i think probably a lot of people who saw the film can can testify to this that this scratched an itch that many people had of something that i don't want to say is realistic because it's not realistic but at the same time you know you look at older action films and you know when when the person finished firing all the bullets from the gun they'd throw the gun away and he'd be like dude you can reload that you know and and so here you have a guy who is making use of all of his wits and making use of all of the resources available to him in the building and a lot of people who saw it at the time that to me i think was the one thing that made it so popular was that it didn't follow those old cliches of non-realism it sort of was like what do we have to work for here
1: right and and At that point in time, Bruce Willis was, you know, known for Moonlighting, so he was more of an average Joe than an action hero, so m- makes him a little bit more relatable at that point, too. Yeah,
0: he was actually, he was uh, more considered almost a comedy star, because in Moonlighting, which he did with Sybil Shepard, he was kind of the comic relief, a little bit of a guy, and so they didn't really think about him as an action star. So the number of people who were considered for the role varies depending on which resources you actually find, mm-hmm. but amongst the people who were very much, we know, confirmed to be considered for the role are Arnold Schwarzenegger, who mm-hmm. was obviously king of the action films at the time although I think he was busy filming Junior when they made this one <laughs> Stallone yeah I know Stallone Mel Gibson Harrison Ford Robert De Niro who would have met that would have been a very interesting film with Robert De Niro
1: yeah I feel like um, the signature yippee um
0: you can swear on the show oh okay, okay. yippee
1: you know, <laughs> sure. ki motherfucker I think would have been a little bit off if De Niro was saying it <laughs>
0: As opposed to Mel Gibson, who says it pretty much in his everyday life, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Burt Reynolds was considered. Nick Nolte was considered. Hey, you know what? I would like to see a version of this film with Nick Nolte today. That yeah. would be a great film. Uh, Richard Gere, Don Johnson, and Richard Dean Anderson, the, of course, from MacGyver fame. Oh, they yeah. were, they were all offered the lead role and they all turned it down before it went to Bruce Willis.
1: And I, I didn't know the last couple there. I did not uh, realize they got that far down the list before Bruce Willis.
0: They got a whole way down the list before Bruce Willis. <laughs> the thing that I find the most amazing about all of the casting what ifs is that in spite of the fact that he was choice number 24601, he still managed to negotiate this crazy payday of $5 million, which at the time was quite a hefty payday. I don't know who he had representing him, but dude, I want that guy in my corner. Because if you can negotiate a $5 million contract when you were choice number nine, holy cow.
1: Yeah, exactly. and uh, and But they were worried before it came out because when the trailers came out with Bruce Willis as the star in it, people were not receptive to the trailers. Trailers.
0: that's right yeah and even some of the original material that they did to promote the film uh, for example the original posters they did not feature Bruce Willis at all they just featured the Nakatomi Plaza exploding imagine that being you know you have you you have such little faith in your star that the poster of your film just features an exploding building that's that's got to be a kick in the head
1: oh yeah uh, and uh, I mean that's more of the studio doing that uh, than the Filmmakers, but I mean, that made the filmmakers very nervous.
0: Hey, speaking of casting what ifs, do you know who the first choice to play Hans Gruber was?
1: No, I'm not aware of that.
0: It was Sam Neill. Really? Australian Sam Neill from uh, Jurassic Park fame. Can you imagine? I'd just like to picture a version of this film where 72 year old Frank Sinatra (laughs) is holding the doctor from Jurassic Park by the watch hanging out of a window at the end of a movie, letting him go and singing, Come Fly with Me. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that that would be that would have been a very different movie. I feel like there's so many alternate versions of this movie. I do love casting what ifs. There's there's so many great uh, iconic roles, which when you think about them, could have potentially gone to other people. In Pretty Woman, the role of uh, Julia Roberts' role was originally going to be for Molly Ringwald of all people. Really? Yeah, Jack Nicholson was going to be Michael Corleone in The Godfather. And one of my personal favorites is that the original choice for Forrest Gump was John Travolta. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, a very different okay. film. Oh, and uh, another one, which which actually I think is really quite fascinating, and even though uh, I, I don't want to see it, I do want to see it, is that the original choice for Walter White in Breaking Bad was Matthew Broderick. Okay. Which... I, like, I think it would have worked. I mean, it's it's not the same show, and don't get me wrong, I will worship Brian Cranston until the day I die. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, that would be a, a super fascinating show.
1: Matthew Broderick has a, had an interesting sort of transition from Ferris Bueller to yeah. now very straight-laced and, like, nerd roles.
0: Yeah, Alan Ruck has, too. The guy who played Cameron has now gone on to be, like, a little bit of a creeper in his later years. Mm-hmm. And
1: the same thing with uh, Henry Winkler, who was the Fonz. Yes. And then he's like got all these goofy roles now and he takes it, which is great. I think he's great.
0: (laughs) He seems, uh, it seems like Henry Winkler these days tends to pick the kind of slightly off kilter, getting up to the edge of creepy, but not quite crossing it over uh, older guy. Mm hmm. Yeah, you got that a little bit in Parks and Rec. You got that a little bit in some of the other things he's done. But uh, yeah, I love him too. He's absolutely fantastic. Uh, speaking of casting, Alan Rickman, who of course one of the greatest villains, I was thinking about this is well, and I haven't asked you this yet. You should think about maybe putting um uh, Hans Gruber on, on the villains on vacation.
1: I I have that was you pitched m- it my pitch. I was like we need to do it for Christmas, and then um, Wes wasn't as thrilled with that one, so we went with the Wet Bandits from Home Alone for our first Christmas episode, and then. I've been pitching it like maybe in July we can do a Christmas in July episode with Hans Gruber. Yeah. He'll get on there. I'm
0: going to make sure of it. I was going to say the 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 film came out in July so you can actually do it, but yeah, I I got to come on your show and talk to Westman because he's I mean, if you really and I'm not just saying this hyperbolically, mm-hmm. is that if you had to pick maybe 5 or 10 of the greatest movie villains of all mm-hmm. time, Hans Gruber is going to be in there. You can pick people like Hannibal Lecter. You can pick Hal from 2001. But Hans Gruber's got to be in there because he does that thing that every great villain has, or, or Nurse Ratchet from Cuckoo's Nest, which is that you can't completely hate them. You sort of understand them a little bit. You, you know, like the people who play the villains who are, er, grr, I'm the villain, you don't care about those people. But the thing about Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber is that as the film goes on, you're like, I kind of like this guy and it makes me uncomfortable that I like him. And if you can play a role like that, you're doing your job correctly.
1: Well, he's got those little lines of, uh, it just kind of connects with it where he's talking to Mr. Takagi going up the elevator and he's like, nice suit, Arafat shops in the same place (laughs) and it's like, oh, this guy's just throwing some shade.
0: (laughs) The benefits of a classical education. Well, the funny thing about Alan Rickman was that he, uh, this was his film debut. This Mm -hmm. was the very first film he ever made. He was 41 years old when yeah. he made this film and the producers of the film were in London and they went to see a production of uh, Dangerous Liaisons, Les Liaisons Dangereux, where he was playing Valmont and they said oh my god we have to get this guy. He was originally a little bit hesitant to do it because he didn't want his first film role to be a villain in an action movie uh, and, and the funny the ironic thing is he was kind of justified in that in the sense that after that they really tried to push him to be that villainous character, and, and which led him to be the only redeeming thing in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and that sort of thing. But he went on to have quite a lovely career and be one of the most beloved actors of the last 20 years.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, one hell of a way to make your film debut is your first role and you're always on the top uh, villains list when they make yeah. them.
0: 100 percent well and and the thing about that is that it, it has to do with so many things one of the things that I found as I was researching this is that there I mean as, as much as you and I know this film very well it's fascinating to see how much was not planned and how much just kind of was very fluid and came together in the creation of the film mm-hmm. you know there were certain scenes that they sort of were like uh, okay uh, let's throw this in because we need this and certain characters who were like uh, okay we have to do this I'll talk about a couple more of those in a second but I, I think it's really fascinating Fascinating to see when it comes to the creation of film, how much is kind of fluid and not planned.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely kind of crazy. Some of the best scenes of the movie were kind of done on the fly, not in the original script, um, even his ending
0: drop um out the window, they yeah. dropped him early. <laughs> That's right. That, that, that look on his face, that, that wonderful look on his face, uh, people might not know is because John McTiernan, the director of the film, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the particulars of it, but imagine if I said, okay, Alan, we're going to drop you on three. And then when they got to two. The director yeah. told the whoever the stunt person was to let him go. And so that look on Alan Rickman's face is a genuine look of, oh, well, shit, <laughs> uh, as he was about to be dropped 40 feet into the, into the air mattress.
1: Right. And they were thrilled that he asked that he was like, I'll do my own stunts. But they made sure that that was his last day of filming it was just in right. case anything goes wrong.
0: But the opposite of that, not if you know this one, is that his first day of filming was the scene between he and John McClain when they meet up and he pretends to be Bill Clay. Mm-hmm. And in that, do you know that part where he's he's going up and he jumps down? He actually hurt his knee. Alan Rickman actually injured his knee and had to wear a leg brace for a number of days. And so if you look at that scene where he's pretending to be Bill Clay and smoking the cigarette, he's leaning up against the wall and they're filming him from the waist up because they didn't want to get his leg brace and he couldn't walk around as they were filming that scene.
1: Oh, wow. I did not know that part of the that little tribute bit. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And that scene was added and was almost entirely ad-libbed between the two of them because Alan Rickman sort of put it to the screenwriter and to McTiernan that he wanted to make Hans a little bit more of a, of a human being. So they wanted to get this kind of scene where he was not just the cliche villain. And as soon as they found out that Alan Rickman could do an American accent, they were like, OK, <laughs> let's go. We're gold. Let's move.
1: Right. Yeah. And it was uh, they found out uh, accidentally on set. He was playing around with different accents and they're like, hey, why I should do a californian accent and she did that
0: there there are actually a lot of lines that were ad-libbed and that stayed in when when hart bachner says hans Booby, when he says Booby, that was ad-libbed as well and when alan rickman looks at him like dude what's that all about <laughs> that's that's quite legitimate <laughs> <laughs> There are a couple mistakes that made it into the film. The other mistake that a lot of people talk about is this scene where John has to fall down the shaft and he's supposed to grab onto the first ventilation shaft and he misses. That was a mistake by the stuntman who was supposed to grab that first vent, but he slipped and then continued to fall. Uh, but they use that shot anyway. But the funny thing about that is whenever I watch that film, when I when I see him catch the second one, that's one of those moments where I'm like, come on. Come on, there's there's no way in hell He would have bounced way off of that Whatever, but they kept it in And it does give a little extra bit of, oh my gosh Mm -hmm. For anybody who's watching the film for the first time
1: YouTube uh, video maker Screen Junkies They did a series called Honest
0: Action Oh, wait, I don't know that one I know Honest Trailers, but they do Honest Action? Oh, they do Honest Action
1: And they talk about the injuries sustained They have doctors tell what the injuries sustained (laughs) From certain action movies I love it and how many times they would die.
0: Have they done Home Alone? Because those two guys in Home Alone would be dead 80 times.
1: Yes, they did do Home Alone. Um, okay, good. They did, uh, they did have done all the diehards. And with that one, the ventilator shaft, um, ventilation shaft, when he goes down there, the doctor said that his, his fingers would be broken and that would be a death in the movie.
0: Which reminds me that speaking of actual injuries, Bruce Willis actually did sustain hearing loss... In the film, he's he still maintains to this day that he lost a lot of the hearing in, I think it's his left ear, from the scene underneath the table where he has to shoot up through the table, <laughs> you know, that scene, th- thanks for the advice, <laughs> that the the gun that he fired was so close to his ear, and apparently they also, John McTiernan ordered extra large blanks with an extra loud sound, so that his hearing was permanently damaged from that scene.
1: Oh, Wow. I was expecting more of his jump off the top of the building when the explosion happened behind him.
0: Yeah, no, this was one because and if you, it's funny, if you look at that scene again, as soon as I found out that fact, I did look at that scene again and you can see that the gun is very close to his ear and I'm surprised I didn't notice it before and think, damn, that must have been really super loud. Well, yeah, obviously it is if he lost hearing out of that. <laughs> <laughs> he referenced the injury, he did a 2007 interview with the Guardian and they asked him what was uh, his most unappealing habit. He said that due, due he said, quote, due to an accident in the first Die Hard. I suffered two thirds partial hearing loss in my left ear, and I have a tendency to say "what." I know. Hey, just just wrapping this first thing up for a second. Mm-hmm. Getting back to uh, the Frank Sinatra bit. As much as you know about the fact that it was Frank Sinatra, do you know what Bruce Willis's very first film role was?
1: I. Do you know You're probably going to say it I'm going to like Okay that makes sense But I cannot think of it Off the top of my head
0: Okay so his very first film role Was in a It was an uncredited role In a movie called The First Deadly Sin Starring You guessed it Old Blue Eyes himself Frank Sinatra <laughs> Really? You can even see Yeah there's even a, There's a clip you can see on YouTube From The First Deadly Sin With Sinatra walking past This sort of uh, be-hatted Bruce Willis In the foreground huh. So it's 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 the passing of the hat From one John McClane To another John <laughs> McClane Thing two, and for thing number two, we pitch it to Eric. Now, I didn't know this one. Hit me up.
1: Okay, there's a connection between Die Hard and the era of Disney movies called the Disney Renaissance that happened between 1989 to uh, 1999, two thousand ish. So, all those animation movies that came out during that time is considered the Disney Renaissance when they had more of the musicals come out and they kind of had their new generation of kids that
0: they reached out to. Right, Lion King, all those films there, yeah. Yeah,
1: all those all those main classics. Um, so in 89 was when The Little Mermaid came out and while they were making that movie in 88, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the one of the executive producers, saw Die Hard and went to his illustrators and said, "The ending is not good enough for this movie. We need to make it more like Die Hard." <laughs>
0: I just love the fact that there's a connection between Die Hard and The Little Mermaid. Okay, now I I have to be honest. I have not seen The Little Mermaid in a while. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember the ending very well. Are there Die Hard elements to The Little Mermaid? So it's more, I would say it's more intense.
1: Um, They didn't throw anyone off of a building because it was under the (laughs) sea and you could just (laughs) swim back up. Um, So in that one, Ursula gets impaled by a ship. And then there's like explosions and electricity and she falls down with the ship. In her chest.
0: Wow. Um, oh. Hey, wait, I think there's two helicopters with Johnson and Johnson going above your house from what I can hear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: passing by right now. <laughs>
0: that was actually a running joke throughout the film, apparently, that, that, that so many of the characters were named Johnson. <laughs> um, so the connection between the two of them, that is just insane.
1: Right, but then if you look at the other movies as they go along, so it was Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under, that was the villain, I think, got no car accident or got arrested. But then you go to Beauty and the Beast, and the end of Gaston is he gets thrown off of a building. Does he really? Yeah, he he's fighting with the Beast, and he loses um, his footing, and he falls off the tower and down into the abyss.
0: So wait, so when did Beauty and the Beast come out? I guess that would have been the mid '90s. So this was that was yeah '92. Uh, '92. So that's like three or four years after this film, right? So
1: yeah, wow. Oh, and then uh, oh, I we're we're going a little bit
0: deeper in here. Oh, go dig deep, brother. <laughs> dig deep.
1: So so Aladdin came out next after Beauty and the Beast, and that one Jafar gets turned into a genie and throws away. So not really a big connection. Okay. You go to Lion King though. Star <laughs> gets kicked off of pride rock in the right. end yeah. fires everywhere every like like everywhere he survived being um falling on the ground but then the hyenas ripped him to shreds <laughs> so there were some elements and scar was played by jeremy
0: irons who in die Hard 3 die Hard 3 that's right yeah is uh hans gruber's brother we could do six degrees of Die Hard at this point <laughs> right <laughs> well and then pocahontas um oh man geez this is a rabbit hole i had no oh. idea
1: we're, we're going. I'm almost to the bottom of the rabbit hole. No, no, but... no hold
0: on. I'm just going to pour another bottle of bourbon here. Go. <laughs>
1: um, Pocahontas, uh, that villain gets arrested. But then it's Hunchback of Notre Dame. That villain is on the top trying to kill the characters. Right. Everything is exploding around or on fire around the tower of or the cathedral. And he falls off the... Um, the ledge holding onto a gargoyle gargoyle and falls down and it kind of if you look at the scene, it kinda of resembles the end of the movie a diehard when he falls and there's fire everywhere. Right. And, um the only thing you're missing is one of the French guards to be like, oh I hope that's not a hostage. <laughs>
0: Oh that's great. Yeah, well, yeah, the French guards were all terrorists in that version of it. Well, actually, it's it's it is it's easy for us to forget the fact that in Die Hard they are not terrorists. That in, mm-hmm. in the original script they were supposed to be terrorists, but John McTiernan and the director did not want them to be terrorists because he considered that would be too mean. And mm-hmm. one of the things that ma- has made this film so iconic and so rewatchable over the years is the fact that it does have a bit of a lightness to it. It doesn't hit as hard as other action films. There is some humor, there is some sad there is some smart assery and aside from that it just has this general light feel which if they had been terrorists even in a pre-9-11 world still would have been pretty hefty and so he chose them to be thieves
1: and and it's a it's a good twist too like you don't when you're watching it the first time you don't really see that coming until they finally like do the unveiling and show their hand
0: do you know Jan de Bont?
1: uh yeah.
0: Jan DeBont went on to become a director of uh, such film, a little film called Speed, okay. five years later. <laughs> that was Jan DeBont. But he was the cinematographer for this film. Mm-hmm. And in the making of the film, he actually got trapped in the elevator. And that led him to be have the inspiration for the opening scene of Speed, where they are all trapped in the elevator. So there's oh, wow. all these connections between this film and other films.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, a direct connection with the music at the very end of the scene um yeah i'm not sure if you're aware of this so when you know where klaus um yeah Klaus yes. alexander good enough yes comes out and starts shooting and powell puts him away um yes that music is the same music from the end of aliens really yes it was a temporary track that they put in in place waiting for the composition to come in and um john mctiernan didn't like the composition that came in so they just kept in the aliens music and it's uh Hyperspace and Resolution is the name of the track from Aliens.
0: <laughs> Hold on, I got to pull that up on Spotify now. <laughs> um but it's the
1: same thing. So there if you uh look up on Spotify also um they have the ending of Die Hard on there. I forget what the album is, but they had 20th Century Fox movie endings and one of them was um Die Hard's ending. And if you listen to that and Hyperspace and Resolution from Aliens, they're the same track.
0: Of course, in this film, one of the big pieces of music that got used was Beethoven's Ode to Joy, Mm -hmm. which became kind of the musical theme of the the terrorists. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was at the the suggestion of John McTiernan, the director. But the composer, Michael Kamen, at first thought that that was a sacrilege to use Beethoven in an action movie. He actually told John McTiernan, he said, quote, I will make mincemeat out of Wagner or Strauss for you, but why Beethoven? (laughs) Thing three. Thing number three. Die hard in various countries has been translated into the most enjoyable array of language you can possibly imagine. In Germany, die hard is known as Stirb langstum, which means die slowly. In Greece, I am not going to insult the nation of Greece by attempting to pronounce this, but in English, it translates into very hard to die. In Norway, it was translated into Action Skyscraper. And in Poland, it was translated into The Glass Trap.
1: Okay. <laughs> I did I did know the German one because there was an interview on Conan with a German comedian. And he brought that up um, about how always Germans are bad
0: guys. Yeah. In the German version of the film, when they translated it, the names and the backgrounds of the German-born terrorists were actually changed to English <laughs> or their British equivalent. So Hans in the German became Jack. <laughs> Carl became Charlie, Heinrich became Henry, uh, and the new, and this is the crazy part, is in the German version, the new background depicted them as radical Irish activists, having gone freelance for profit. Rather than for ideals, which, if you think about it, may, leads to a lot of plot holes when it comes to Die Hard with a Vengeance because Gruber is remembered as being very, very German. Oh, yeah. But they had to do that because uh, German terrorism, uh, especially in the 1980s when this came out, was very, very sensitive issue. So they said, yeah, we're not we're not going to do
1: that. I guess with the IRA was still active in that point. So it's just easy to switch with if you're in Germany, we'll just make them... Irish.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, the uh, Danish translation of Die Hard with a Vengeance was Die Hard, Mega Hard, which <laughs> you don't want to look up on the internet no. if you don't want to. This is a completely unrelated fact, but you know the film, this is getting back to Disney for a second, the, mm-hmm. film, the film Moana
1: mm-hmm.
0: had to be changed in Italy. The, the name of the film had to be changed in Italy. Do you know why, Eric? No,
1: I'm not.
0: I don't. Because the name Moana in Italy also happens to be the name of the most famous porn star in all of Italy and is also, from what my wife leads me to understand, an Italian term for female genitals. And so they did not want young children to be going to their computers typing Moana in, and so they changed the name to Oceana.
1: Wow. It's it's always interesting when... You get a movie title and you get to a different country and it has some other meaning that you have to switch it.
0: Oh, I love them. There's so many. I I, the, I remember the very first time I encountered this. My wife is from the south of France and uh, she. we were talking about the film Jaws and the film Jaws, she told me what the French name was and then I translated it in my head and I said, wait a minute, that transla- translates into the teeth of the sea. Well, that's, if you, if you look at the film Jaws in France, it is the teeth of the sea. Some of my other favorites, Ghostbusters in China was called Superpower Dare Die Team. Uh, The Full Monty was called Six Naked Pigs. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was, If You Leave Me, I Delete You. Boogie Nights was, His Powerful Device Made Him Famous. That's in China. I know. That's a really good one in China. And my personal favorite, Leaving Las Vegas in Japan translates into, I'm drunk and you're a prostitute. Okay, just spot on the nose there. <laughs> well, and actually, Ghostbusters, um, they had issues with
1: getting the rights for the name Ghostbusters.
0: For the for the new one or for, for the, the original
1: one? Um, there was an uh, old TV series with Ghostbusters that still owned the rights, and they couldn't get it at first. So they would do two takes of everything with Ghostbusters, and I forget the name that they were using in between. So they were just doing double the, the work um, until they got the rights.
0: So there's this whole other film that exists out there where they're not called Ghostbusters, but they're called Spirit Breakers. It was up until that point where they had the public
1: cheering Ghostbusters uh, towards the end of the movie where they're like, yeah, Ghostbusters. And (laughs) they like had a phone and they're like, listen to this. We're keeping the name and we can worry about the rights later.
0: Hey, speaking of the rights, the rights for Die Hard were originally held. Do you know who held the rights? No,
1: I'm not.
0: It was Clint Eastwood. Really? And he actually saw himself in the role of John McClane. He held the rights for a while into the early 80s and planned to star himself but he eventually decided to pass on it maybe he thought he was a bit too long in the tooth for it I don't know I, I wonder what the age difference between those two is I just I don't feel like Clint Eastwood would have done John McClane justice well but you know because you know what the thing is that made John McClane so interesting and makes him such a good character is the fact that he's he's not an action star now in in the film since then he's kind of morphed into that aside from Willis morphing also into a trumper but we won't talk about that <laughs> is the fact that what in the if you choose just take the original Die Hard mm-hmm. with the original John McClane, if you take a cliche action star like a Stallone or something, like, it becomes a different movie. Mm-hmm. It's not the same movie. If you take somebody, this sort of smartassery who's not a you know a jacked action star, although I'd love to be as jacked as Bruce Willis was in 1989, mm-hmm. it, it becomes a bit of a different movie and you, and you take it a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I feel like they kept that for the first three movies. They kind of kept that sort of everybody, every man vibe with John McClane
0: right yeah and then it kind of went off the rails after what was the last one Die Hard 12 uh, Die harder I can get dying even harder than I died before right
1: I live <laughs> live free and die hard I thought was uh it was entertaining as a like a standalone movie, but I, it doesn't really fit with the Die Hard mold, I feel like. And then <laughs> A Good Day to Die Hard, the fifth one, is just like, all right, you guys, you're, you're done. Just stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember seeing that in the theater and walking out and being like, I am not going to remember a thing about that film. And here I am, what, 10 years later? And I was right. Mm-hmm. I don't remember anything about the film aside from the fact that uh, I think Bruce Willis was in that film.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was bad.
0: The uh the Nakatomi Plaza of course is the Fox headquarters. Mm-hmm. It's the 20th Century Fox headquarters, which I've been to. Uh, I was I, my one of my best friends lives in LA and I was driving down the street and I all of a sudden saw the Nakatomi building and I just flipped out. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, there's the Nakatomi building." But it's become so so popular now that tourists are forbidden from taking pictures in front of it. Now.
1: Really? That's, that's yeah. a little drastic, if you ask
0: me. Actually, speaking of which, if you look at a couple of the goofs from IMDb and other places, one of the ones that I think is most interesting is one of the quirkiest scenes and the ones that I've never quite understood them is at the very beginning. You remember when he arrives at the party and he looks out the window and he sees there's a girl who's kind of like in a building across the way. And she's kind of—is she changing or doing yoga or something? Mm-hmm. Do you know? You
1: know the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. When he's when he's like freshening up
0: a little bit, he's freshening and he's up, up, and he yeah, he looks out the window and he sees this woman. I always thought like, what's what's the purpose of that being there? Like that he's a perv or a. Anyway, aside mm-hmm. from that, if you look at the rest of the shots of the Nakatomi Plaza, especially the wide shots, there's no other buildings around it. Mm-hmm. That's the one. That's the one shot where there's all of a sudden this building next door. But if you look at every other shot with the, you know, the helicopters attacking and everything else, there's no other building around it yet in this one shot for some inexplicable reason, they decide to turn McLean into a perv for five seconds.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that and another goof is uh, when the terrorists are, or when the, when our villains
0: <laughs>
1: go out of the, the box truck, there's no ambulance in the back of the box truck that you can exactly.
0: see. <laughs> One of my other favorite ones, and now I just came across this today and I haven't looked it up yet, but next week when we watch Die Hard on Christmas Day, I'm going to pause and see my daughter. So the scene where Bruce Willis wraps the chain around Alexander Goodnov's neck mm-hmm. and kills him at the very, very end, when he, you know, he swings down on the chain and then he's hanging – he sits down and apparently in that shot, as he sits down against the, the barrier, you can see Alexander Goodenov just hanging out in the back of the shot, waiting for the shot to be over. Really? Yeah. Now, I have not looked that up, so <laughs> I'm I'm going to let this stay in the podcast before, but I'm going to assume that if the internet told me something, it must be true, right? Uh,
1: of course. Yeah, that's how the internet works.
0: And that will do it for this week's very hard to die episode. This Christmas, this festive Christmas episode. Actually, here's the one thing that, that we'll wrap up with that I didn't mention is the fact that it's become a Christmas tradition, just like the war on Christmas. You know, the war on Christmas begins earlier every year. Um, <laughs> is that there's always the debate about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. But here's the funny thing I find about that debate, which is that... I do not know a single person, nor have I ever talked with a single person who has ever contradicted the fact that it's easily viewed as a Christmas movie. It's almost like his manufactured outrage that people are like, all these people who don't think it's a... Who? I've never met anybody. If you... By the way, listener, if you are one of the people who thinks it's not a Christmas movie, please feel free to write in at threeinterestingthings at gmail.com or tweet it to us at three, the number three interesting or go to our Instagram at the number three interesting things. Eric, my friend, thank you so much for joining us you have any socials you want to throw out our way
1: um yeah so uh we're on facebook um villains on vacation um we're on twitter at uh villains on vacay that's v-a-c-a-y um and that's also our instagram too um we don't have a set release schedule at this point but um we'd love to hear any feedback that people have or any ideas on villains we should do um always open to listener input I I have an
0: idea for a villain that you could do. Uh, love to hear it. Hans Gruber, man, come on! I got we we I got to talk. I got to talk to your partner, man. I got to get him in on it.
1: He's uh, he's on our list. I have him on the list, and he's not getting thrown out of that. Look list. at it this way: because like,
0: do you, do you ever have any guests come on your podcast? Uh we do. Okay, so when you do the Hans Gruber, you got to bring me on because I could tell you, I could answer. I know what a date with Hans Gruber would be like. Not only that, I would go on a date with Hans Gruber. <laughs> I would completely date Hans Gruber. He would—I'm sure he would be an absolutely fantastic date. The wine would be extraordinary. I would look horrible sitting next to him, but I would totally do it. And it would be a very classy event. He'd make sure of it. Like he's a
1: very (laughs) extravagant person. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the show. All right. right, thanks, Don.
0: What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact. story article something else whatever it is we want it email us at three at gmail.com or hit us up on instagram at three that's the number three interesting things or tweet it to us at three that's the number three interesting you'll get a shout out on the show if you're enjoying the show head on over to apple podcasts and give us a review it helps other people find the show we'll see you next week